Well, first of all, thanks for having me back, and thanks for that extraordinarily generous uh, introduction. I hope uh, I do well enough today that I show I deserved it. Uh, in terms <laughs> of, of <laughs> in terms of uh, what you raise, I do think this is qualitatively different. A lot of the other times we've been divided in our country, and there have been many, and let's put aside the, the Civil War, uh, sui generis. The, the divisions were over policies, Vietnam, uh, whether to stay in or, or get out or escalate or, or what have you, over various aspects of, of civil rights or, or any number of differences over abortion or, or guns or whatever. But these were policy differences. I think what's different now is the degree of polarization that, one, makes it very hard to address these policy differences in a constructive way. Compromise uh, has become extraordinarily uh, difficult, but also we're beginning to see behaviors, statements and behaviors that go beyond policy differences. They actually are, they do constitute in many ways challenges or even threats to, to what you fairly described as the system, to the workings of American democracy uh, it, itself. And I think that's what's qualitatively qualitatively different about the about the current moment uh let me share a quote with you as a quote from a uh, speech that uh, recently delivered on the campaign trail by president trump he said they want to take away my freedom because i will never let them take away your freedom they want to silence me because i will never let them silence you uh is that the kind of rhetoric that you're talking about? Well, again, I think he's mischaracterizing his situation. No one's taking away his First Amendment rights, but we've always had limits. Uh, and to use the cliche, uh, you can stand on a street corner and say something about fire, but you can't shout it in a crowded theater. And the problem with Mr. Mr. Trump is you know, that he's acting on some of the things he's saying. He's encouraging action. I think, or he has in the past encouraged action that constitute uh, conspiracy. Again, I'm not a, a lawyer, but I think it's important to distinguish between First Amendment rights uh, and then where you cross certain lines, either morally or legally. By the way, I think the moral line is important, too. Ron DeSantis the other day talking about if he gets in, the first thing he's going to do is uh, slit the throats of the deep state. Uh, that seems to me uh, is a degree of, uh, shall we say, license that's truly offensive. It discourages anybody talented from going into government or staying there. And I think it could, at worst, uh, worst yet, encourage violence against, uh, against in individuals. So I think, I think people in the public space, put aside the legal issues, simply have, uh, to use my favorite word, have obligations to speak about uh, public life in a way that doesn't escalate every every dis, every difference either into gridlock or worse yet violence well I, I, when i hear they want to take away my freedom because i will never let them take away your freedom uh mm -hmm. who who they is of course remains undetermined but yeah. presumably it means quote the crooked biden crime family mm -hmm. in quotes yeah. Uh, the other side, but the the notion that that there are millions and millions of Americans who really believe that the other side wants to take away our freedom, 
It's yep. uh, been really since the uh, the Civil War that 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 has been widely believed, isn't it? It's gotten worse. I think social media reinforces it, whether it's anonymity, uh, which allows people to be uh, extreme. I think the fact that we have very few common experiences anymore, not only we don't have a draft, but you know, increasingly Americans watch their own cable stations or go on their own social media sites or they don't they don't move much from their own geography uh people don't have a lot of connections to uh other people so uh, i think it's getting i think it's gotten worse i'm not saying we haven't had some of this in, in uh, the past but you can't it's very hard for example to have a serious conversation about choose one area guns well i might say it's fine to hold to be able to buy uh guns as many as you want but yeah Certain types of automatic weapons, AR-15s, are not the kinds of weapons we ought to have on our, our streets. Why can't one argue that and not be accused of trying to take away our gun rights? Or this is just the thin end of the wedge. Uh, it makes it very hard to have a serious conversation if people are going to say we're trying to take away, confiscate everybody's guns. No, we may simply want to have certain limits on who can acquire guns, given histories of mental illness, or the kinds of guns. You, know, we don't make a, you and I can't go out and buy an F-16 and keep parking in our backyard. We can't go out and buy <laughs> an F-16 weapon. We can't afford it either. That's a good point, too, uh, particularly with these interest rates. So, right. the, so we already have certain limits on the type of weaponry individuals can, uh, can possess. So let's, let's have a serious conversation about who can possess what. And that's the, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Uh, same thing with abortion. It doesn't need to be all or nothing. We can have a serious conversation about viability and where, 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 where one can draw a compromise between no limits on abortion and no abortion. And it's just gotten harder to have these debates to search out a reasonable middle ground. In terms of the international challenges, I'd probably put them in two buckets, Michael. Yeah. One would be different types of global challenges. Uh, over a million Americans died because of a virus that broke out one way or another in a city in China, in Wuhan. Probably 20 million people have died worldwide. So there's that kind of a global challenge. There's climate change, which uh, is getting worse, and it's getting worse sooner. Uh, it'll, it's already affecting our health, our, our livelihoods, uh, where we live, how we live. So I, I worry about the, these, these global issues. And then what you and I have been talking about for some time often on the air, which is the, the return of geopolitics. Here we are three decades after the, uh, the end of the Cold War, when we, after which a lot of people predicted a, a great deal of harmony. We got rudely awakened from that with 9-11. But in, in addition to terrorism, which hasn't gone away, uh, I worry about you know, uh, Russia. Uh, this is a country where which still has the world's largest nuclear arsenal, and Vladimir Putin has essentially removed any institutional restraint in that country. He's deinstitutionalized Russia. That worries me. The possibility of a war one day between the United States and China obviously concerns me. What an Iran could do or North Korea. So I think we live in a really dangerous time where we've got, if you will, the traditional stuff of great power and medium power politics and geopolitics. Then we've also got this overlay of, of global challenges. And then it circles back to what you and I have talked about this time, which is America's domestic division. And it puts, we're, we, we've put ourselves in a position 
where we're, we're less able to deal effectively with these external challenges. And that, that makes, to me, for a pretty toxic group. When you look at American political leadership right now, uh, not talking about one side or another, but is there an individual, a prominent individual on either party or of no party who is making the kind of sense that Americans should hear? I see people on both sides who I uh, admire. Uh, unfortunately, none of them's running for president right now. Uh, but on the Democratic side, I see two people in this administration I have tremendous respect for. I hope uh, by saying this, I don't hurt them. Uh, one is Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce. Another is Mitch Landro, the former mayor of, uh, of New Orleans, who's the infrastructure person. There. So it just doesn't just stay two what I would call centrist Democrats. There, there, there's others in and out of government. But I look. I was just watching TV, TV, TV for a few minutes actually before I went on, and I watched John Kasich uh, from Ohio talking, and I thought just made you know, great, great uh, uh, sense. So yeah, there's, I, I have a lot of respect for Mitt Romney. I think there's people out there who are basically playing the game close, you know, close to the center of the field, close to midfield, and they're they're playing the game by the rules in a respectful way which doesn't preclude finding some common ground with people on the other side of the field and uh in terms of the other side of the field uh what about this idea about new guarantees of nuclear protection a nuclear umbrella for uh our allies in the U uh, middle east which would at least conceivably according to reports in the paper today include both saudi Arabia and Israel. Yes, yeah, a big idea. Uh, the devil will be in the details. Will, he, will the guarantees be universal? Uh, what kind of obligations would these countries or responsibilities they have to accept? Because I don't think we would necessarily make unconditional uh, guarantees. What would they be willing to do in return? What kind of restraints would they accept on their freedom of action? We don't want them to do things that would bring about the very situations we would like to avoid. So I'm not against it. Just me, the, the guy who's worked on such issues before, is is wary or uh, just I just want to work through all the conditions and understandings. I don't think we want to be in the business of, of extending unconditional uh, guarantees that no matter what happens or how it came about, we're going to be there. To use an economic term, that would introduce moral hazard. So I think these have got to be more condition guarantees. And speaking of condition guarantees, if uh, Ukraine ends up joining NATO, well, then they have that guarantee of Article 5. They are protected along right. with the other NATO states by a, a sense of mutual responsibility and uh, joint defense. But uh, what what is the best bet for actually ending the war? And that, this puts aside... President Trump's secret plan for ending it in 24 hours, but uh, it, let's let's say we you, one aims at least on the possibility of ending the Ukraine war beneficially for the world, say by the end of 2024. Is that feasible, and how? It's feasible. It's a it's a long shot. It's a, but it's more feasible than ending it in 23. Look, it takes one side to begin a war, which is what happened this time. It takes both to end it. 
And that would mean that both Ukraine and Russia, both Zelensky and Putin, would have to be prepared to, 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 to settle uh, for less than they initially sought, uh, unless the battlefield gets transformed one way or the other. And at the moment, neither is prepared to uh, do that. And so it, I don't think the situation is ripe right now for a, a diplomatic settlement. This meeting that just took place in Saudi Arabia was many things, but it wasn't a serious peace conference. Uh, the leadership on both sides of, the, of this struggle would, will have to uh, evolve in their thinking about whether it's worth continuing the war. So what might what's probably unacceptable now, it's possible it could become acceptable down the road, particularly if China leaned on Putin or if Ukraine came to the conclusion that trying to militarily liberate their land was not feasible anytime soon, and they were putting their country at risk by, by holding out. But I don't think either side, uh, I don't think Russia is ready to compromise. I don't know if you saw, Michael, the piece in the New York Times a few days ago by Roger Cohen. He spent four months in Russia and basically made the case that Putin is preparing his country for prolonged war, that they're, they're digging in not just on the battlefield, but they're digging in psychologically. So, uh, and culturally, it's terrifying. Some time to play up. Absolutely. It was a really, really worrisome piece about the long-term cultural, almost engineering we're seeing going on in that, in that country. So I came away reading that, from reading that piece, even more concerned and somewhat more pessimistic about the, the diplomatic prospects. Uh, and in terms of uh, uh, diplomatic uh, prospects, for um, uh, NATO and uh, con continued strengthening of the yeah. alliance, uh, will that survive a, a perhaps brutal, bitter American election? I think there's concern in Europe about Mr. Trump because uh, he represents a departure from the post-World War II uh, norm, uh, consensus in this country. So there'll be a lot of anxious watching from across the, uh, from across the Atlantic. I think if another Republican wins or Mr. Biden wins or another Democrat wins, I think Europe will, will, breathe, will breathe a sigh of relief. I think the one, the one set of concerns is what happens if Donald Trump essentially has a second turn in the Oval Office.